You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I think every little kid dreams about being famous and being in movies. This is California. This is where you make it. This is where it all starts. You'll get signed by a label. You can star on Disney Channel. You know, what kid wouldn't want that, right? I remember you asked me if I ever did anything with a guy before. I was not interested at 12. You're not recording this, right? Looks like an angel. Hollywood doesn't have any system in place to protect anybody. And children are way down on that list. Children need management just like everybody else. Everybody liked him. He became part of the family. In the beginning, it was happy, and then things started changing. They pick on people who they know will be victims. You have an adult who is manipulating the child. Just getting you know, hired on the spot like that. That had never happened before. It was obvious that something was going on. The party made me feel uncomfortable. There were lots of drugs available, and there were young teenage boys. I remember being scared. He just told me, this is what you have to do. A number of boys told me to point the gun at them just like that. He said, do you not understand the power I have? You're the devil in the sky. I remember sitting in my room and crying my eyes out. He said, what would you do? That happened to me. A lot of investors completely denied that anything was going on. Clearly, the studio didn't want an investigation. I hated when you tried to have me sleep in your bed and touch me. I don't know anything about them. There will always be a steady stream of kids who want to be famous. We're absolutely talking about the tip of an iceberg. It wasn't uncommon, let's put it that way. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is the cultural gutters, Carol Borden. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mike. This week, we're discussing An Open Secret, premiering in 2014. The film is directed by Amy J. Berg. It's a documentary concerned about the sexual exploitation of young people in the entertainment industry. We're introduced to a handful of young men who have fallen victim to predators. The film begins with maybe one of the most harrowing episodes of television I've ever seen. I'm not talking about Monroe's rape on Too Close for Comfort or the finale of MASH or the near rape of Edith Bunker. I'm talking about Mr. Carlson from WKRP trying to seduce Arnold Drummond on different strokes. Carol, had you seen the Bicycle Man episodes of Different Strokes before this? Uh, no, I hadn't. I was aware of it, and I think I even remember the TV advertisements for it, but I didn't watch it till this afternoon. What'd you think? Harrowing is the right word for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I was 11 years old when I think I saw that the first time, and that just messed me up. How did it mess you up? Well, first off, I was a big WKRP in Cincinnati fan. Yeah. So to see him, the same guy who's so lovable and everything, there, like, just that whole way that he goes about seducing Arnold, really kind of scary. Yeah, and, and poor Arnold's friend Dudley getting trapped so that we don't actually know if he's okay in a sense. Wasn't that redheaded kid who was on, uh, he was in Terminator to wasn't he in different strokes for a while was he the replacement cute kid when arnold started getting a little older maybe i'm not sure i didn't watch different strokes we, my sister preferred facts of life and she was older than me so we tended to watch that <laughs> well there's that crossover too with mrs garrett yeah, right? yeah 
they dealt with some issues there too. Oh, I'm sure. Watching it, I just couldn't help thinking about what Gordon Jump, who plays the Bicycle Man, and Mr. Carlson uh, thought about playing that role. Like it, it's a nice little bit of activism on his part. Were you familiar with some of the people that were in this documentary before you saw the film? No. I mean, I was aware of Todd Bridges. I was aware of the Corys. And obviously, I'm aware of Brian Singer. But I, I didn't even know about the Digital Entertainment Network or any of those other people. And then doing research for it, you see how much impact they've had on all these other areas and and how influential and powerful they are, but you don't see much about them personally. I was not familiar with, uh, what's the guy's name? Brock? Brock Pierce. Apparently he was in First Kid with Sinbad or something. Yeah. Yeah, I was not familiar with him at all. And then I wasn't familiar with DEN, the Digital Entertainment Network, though when they started showing promos for it, I was just like, okay, one of many, you know, dot com startups that happened during the nineties, but really just it was not on my radar. And it took me back a little bit to kind of see, you know, oh yeah, well television's dead and we're gonna, you know, replace everything with online and it just really took me back to a lot of the startups that were happening back then when it was just like, Yeah, you can't really replace television on a fifty six K block <laughs> modem or anything. No. We're not quite there yet. They were certainly optimistic. I mean, assuming they weren't just straight up mendacious. I'm so curious to see more of some of the stuff that they did just because the few clips that were shown in this documentary, it was just like, wow, I am really creeped out just by like two minutes of programming from this thing. The other thing I was thinking about is there are so many child stars who come through that Disney machine and end up really in bad places in their teen years and their adulthood. And I noticed that Brock Pierce was coming through Disney, it seems like, and he was in the Mighty Ducks movies. It just seems so systemic when you, even looking at, like, going back to different strokes, it's like, I don't know, you know, well, obviously, um, Gary Coleman had passed away a few years ago, but I think that was much more medical-related than drug or anything related, but he wasn't necessarily, he didn't strike me as the happiest guy in the world when I would see him on things like uh, that VH1, um, you know, surreal life type thing. But obviously, Todd Bridges and Dana Plato, pretty miserable lives, and then poor Dana Plato is not with us any longer either. Yeah. Yeah, and they took so much blame for it for so long, where people would make fun of them and make jokes about them, and they went through a meat grinder. I can't even imagine, you know, you mentioned the Corys, and Corey Feldman shows up a few times in this in some archival footage, and him talking about how he almost pretty much sold out Corey Haim to a known child predator. I can't even imagine what Corey Feldman has been through in his life. I mean... He went through that whole Michael Jackson phase, and it's like they didn't even touch on the Michael Jackson stuff in this. Oh, no. <laughs> I still get shit today when I go out and I, you know, and people are just like, oh, Michael Jackson, oh, today's the whatever anniversary of his death, and oh, well, we miss him so much. And it's just like, why are you louding this child molester? And it's like, no, you don't know. You don't know for sure. And it's like, I am pretty sure. Yeah that what's going on here yeah <laughs> it, yeah i i can understand 
I have trouble listening to his music. I have less trouble than I did, but I can understand people who make a conscious decision to separate that sort of like, I understand the people like I can't watch Polanski. I've actually got a DVD from Netflix for a Polanski movie that I was going to watch and I just could not. And it's a visceral response, but I understand other people don't necessarily have that visceral response and are able to separate some artists from their art. But I, I don't understand that kind of denial with things that just are so clearly skeevy. I don't know if I should even be saying this or not, but a few years ago I met a guy who was a detective on the Michael Jackson stuff, and he <laughs> he was not a fan of anybody involved in this case. When he came in and his boss told him that they were going to be working one of the Michael Jackson cases, he's like, great, are we working for the child molester or for the extortionist? He pretty much was coming down that everybody was to blame in this story because there were some people that just like had dollar signs in their eyes about this whole thing. And so I had to ask him, you know, over drinks, I was just like, so what did you come to conclude with this? And he said, yeah, Michael Jackson was definitely a serial child molester. And when you look at some of those, like, I don't know if you ever saw that 2020 special about him. I mean, he was out to lunch. He was completely gone. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember when he was going into his extreme surgery and I realized what he's trying to look like is an animated Disney character. He's trying to look, he's trying to have that kind of face and live in that kind of world. And I, I, I assume perhaps some of it or most of it is um, growing up with the pretty horrible life that he grew up with. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's so cyclical that it just, it, it it seems like it never ends. So, like, I can see how you would grow up with Joe Jackson and you'd be like, you know what? I want to be in a Disney cartoon. I want that life. <laughs> yeah, I want to live in a place called Neverland. I want to climb trees and have sleepovers with kids that are, you know, not quite to puberty. Yeah, but I'm an adult and I'm a human being, not a cartoon. And yeah. And I was kind of unsure at first. Like I remember when uh, the last X-Men movie was coming out, the, what was that? The uh, days of future past. Yeah. And it was right around the time that the movie was coming out that the latest batch of charges against Brian Singer kind of came out into the media. And I don't mean charges as far as legal charges, but just people saying, yeah. hey, there's this stuff that's going on. Yeah. Uh, and I will tell you personally, I was just like, oh, man, you know, you couldn't come out at a worse time and make these accusations. And they're just trying to drag his movie through the mire and all this. But now seeing some of the things from an open secret and some of the things that I've read since then, it's like, okay, yeah, there's a problem here. Yeah. Yeah. And we get, um, I mean, as, as movie fans, we can get caught up in, in everything is about movies and it's all about the movies. And so things that are honestly coincidences because it, the world exists with outside of movies and the concerns of movie fans and the concerns of critics and filmmakers and everything. So like when you're in that bubble, you can feel like it's all about uh, embarrassing him when his triumph is happening with his new movie. And other people are like, no, this is just when the court papers 
made it through because this is when Michael Egan's lawyer got all his stuff together so that he could say something. And it, it might have, I don't think it hurt them in terms of people paying more attention, but I think it probably hurt them in terms of people dismissing what they were saying about Brian Singer. And it's funny that he seems to be getting away with this. You know, it's like, I remember when Powder came out in 95 and just, you know, people were picking up pitchforks, metaphorically, of course, about Victor Salva and the charges that have been filed against him. And here he is making this movie about this young boy and all this. And, I mean, the the X-Men movies, yes, there's a lot of stuff uh, about, you know, where you can take... Mm-hmm the metaphor of the mutants and kind of apply it to World War II and the camps and everything, but you can also apply it to, um, you know, young uh, people finding out about their sexuality. And then, yeah, I think you can probably look at some of this stuff as like, oh, okay, you know, they're being persecuted for being what they are. And I wonder if there's a little metaphor going on in there as far as, you know, hey, I happen to enjoy underage kids. You know, leave me alone. I shouldn't be persecuted. Yeah, that's going to be your reading I bring to it now if I can ever watch one of his movies. I'm almost afraid I've never seen Apt Pupil, but I'm almost afraid to go back and watch that one now. Yeah, it takes, I mean, it already was like that, you know, like there was already that resonance, but at least it was a resonance that added to the Ian McKellen character's villainy and not one that reflected back on Brian Singer. And it feels terrible because... I don't want to say there's a fine line, but it seems like in a lot of people's minds, there's a fine line between pedophilia and homosexuality. And, and this movie doesn't necessarily do that much to kind of, it it doesn't make that chasm any larger. It kind of stays on that same path. It isn't right that we immediately think, Oh, all pederasts are gay. And Thus, you know, all gay people are pederasts, you know, and and it's unfortunate, too, that this film just deals strictly with men preying on boys, and there's not any sort of other differentiation in here. There's no gender differences when it comes to this. It made me think about our discussion about Night Moves before, and a thing I didn't bring up when we were talking about Melanie Griffith's character and how the men were perceiving her and, and preying on her and how she was responding to them. Um, I had a really strong sense that I didn't look up that Melanie Griffith herself was underage while she was performing this character. And I, I really hope not. But when I look at um, the way things are now, I can only imagine how much more acceptable people preying on underage kids was back when movies were being made in the 60s and 70s. There are so many child stars that just burned out so spectacularly. It's just like, yeah, God, I can't even imagine what these people went through. Yeah, the, I don't know if it resonated with you, but that part where the casting director is talking to the kids, and these are like kid kids. These are like eight-year-olds, and she's telling them that once you're eight, you're responsible for your own headshot. And she's, I, I, can't, I can't imagine ever talking to eight-year-olds the way she was like on one hand she was talking to them like you were an adult of like you're responsible for your stuff in a way an eight-year-old can't be but then she's also just really uncompassionate and really um harsh to them 
in a way that I think is not good, particularly for small children. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't find it acceptable in a working environment anywhere, but with children, treating them like like that and like they're adults and that they should keep things from their parents is just setting such setting up a, such a stage for abuse. Oh, and they also had um, their reporter who was going to write a story for details that got killed. And so they, they took all the stuff for the movie. I think he, he gave us an announcement that these people aren't gay. These people are uh, pedophiles and this is different from being gay announcement. Have you ever seen that documentary chicken Hawk? No. If you want to see another one that's going to turn your stomach. <laughs> Maybe a little while. That's where I first learned of NAMBLA. I had no idea what it was until I saw that documentary. And I want to say it was like probably mid-early 90s. Yeah, that's when we were really, NAMBLA was really pushing it in the game. Just to hear some of these guys, the way that they were talking, and there was one guy who was talking about how these boys were coming on to him and flirting with him, and just to hear things through his eyes and his perspective, mm-hmm. oh my god, it just, your blood runs cold watching it. He kept uh, making excuses to pull up his shirt and show me his belly in a highly flirtatious way to any ordinary boy lover such as myself uh, a very exciting and appealing way i probably will watch it eventually because it's important to know about but i'm gonna have some space (laughs) this was not a light and fluffy movie by any means aside from one thing i think the structure served it pretty well like it's in no way an innovative documentary it's lots of people talking about their experience and lots of interviews and i think that was wise because really it's the subject matter that should come to the fore. Um, But the one problem I had was how they told the story of Ryan G. Like I I understand how they got in this place of we'll have this arc where we'll start talking with his family about his life and how he got drawn in. And then we can attach all the stories of the other people who also were ensnared by the same pedophile ring at different stages of his life. But I feel like the material was powerful enough. I didn't need to start out thinking that this young man was dead and then finding out that he was alive, but impaired in his ability to move and communicate. Right. I I think that it would have been probably better served just to tell us that up front. And I probably would have had the triumphant feeling that I think I was supposed to have that, oh, he's alive and he wants to coach, but I couldn't pay attention because I was so un nerved by the structure and so unhappy about you know this this poor kid and what's happened to his life because of these people that seemed to be the one exploitative moment for me when his dad got really upset and talked about you know when his son goes out and is able to coach that's the day that he can die happy yeah i'm watching this on an airplane and i'm crying (laughs) i just didn't appreciate crying because I was so upset about what had happened to him, and I was relieved to discover that he was still alive, I couldn't really, his dad's dream of him doing this couldn't actually penetrate those other feelings and couldn't get beyond, I, I, I hope that happens for you. With what I'm being faced with right now, I can't believe that that's going to happen for you because they've given me no sense of his improvement or what doctors will say i just see this 
this kid who was lucky enough to survive an alcoholic seizure <laughs> with brain damage. Let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with one of the producers of An Open Secret, Gabe Hoffman. I manage money for rich people picking stocks. I've done that for about 15 years, been very blessed and fortunate, and uh, have my own company, and I'm based in Florida. And how did you get into the movie business? Sure. Well, my really good friend, Matt Valentinas, he's our co-producer on An Open Secret. He went to film school at NYU. I went to undergrad business school. We became friends. We stayed in touch. And we were talking about just media in general and how structurally it's it's changed over the last couple of decades, particularly investigative journalism, how 20 or 30 years ago you had the big three networks that everybody would, would watch during dinner time, the evening news, had real investigative journalistic budgets, big magazines, things like that. And today with technology and the internet and fragmentation, a lot of the traditional sources for investigative journalism have really gone by the wayside and structurally documentaries are picking up a lot of the slack. And there's been a lot of important documentary work in a lot of areas, exposing issues and raising awareness and bringing uh, bringing about positive societal change. So Matt and I were talking and he said, look, you know, we said if there was ever something worthy to show it to me and Matt's an entertainment attorney now. He's been in the business over 15 years. He came up with the idea of investigating child sex abuse in Hollywood. How did that idea come about for him? He had seen Corey Feldman talking in about 2011. It was right after the death of Corey Haim. And if you recall, Corey Haim had a whole bunch of drugs in his system, said he had been sexually abused as a youth in Hollywood. Corey Feldman said the same thing. And Matt came up with the idea, look, he believed there was a lot of unexposed child sex abuse in Hollywood, that this was a, a real problem. The industry had not done its part to uh, try to stop like ordinary good citizens. I was kind of skeptical, to be honest. Uh, couldn't build a documentary around Corey Feldman, and Corey Haim, unfortunately, was no longer with us, and th they had their issues. But Matt assured me, if the research was done, there would be plenty to fill a documentary. So, Matt found Disarming Films. That's a film production company run by Amy Berg. Amy Berg is the director of An Open Secret, and she directed uh, a number of, of documentary films, particularly Deliver Us from Evil in 2006, which was an expose on the Catholic Church and, and child sex abuse. He partnered us up, and at first we agreed to just research. So Disarming Films did all of the research that would go into the documentary, and we would see if we had enough to actually then do a film. And sure enough, after a few months of very intensive research on their part, uh, there were two one, one-and-a-half-inch-thick binders that showed up on my desk, a CD-ROM, five to ten times as much credible information as, as you actually see on screen. It was, it was shocking, and it was a project that, at that point, it, it was almost a moral obligation to make sure it made it to the finish line. You kind of focus on just a, a handful of stories, which I think is probably for the best, so that we can just follow these few characters kind of through their stories. How did you decide on, though, which characters, which gentlemen we would follow through their kind of arc of what had happened to them and where they are today? What was most important was the quality of evidence. And 
obviously, Mike, since you watch a number of documentaries, I would certainly be interested in, in your view on the quality of evidence in an open secret compared to the average documentary film, which you might see. And Amy and Disarming, we use the, the highest journalistic standards. That is, no compensation, not a dime to any of the survivors. That was very important. Showing their faces, first name, last initial, although people may find out who they are. And having to name the accuser, the place, the situation in, in high descriptive detail. And then finally, have some kind of official thing that backs it up, whether it's an admission on screen, whether it's a court case, a lawsuit that was settled and decided in favor of the accuser. When you add up all those ingredients and you combine that with the fact that, let's face it, it's, it's a tremendously difficult thing to go on camera and talk about. You or I couldn't imagine how tough it is. That adds up to a small fraction of the research actually turning into folks who are willing and, and so brave to come on film and share their story. So it was a very organic research quality driven process. So you get those binders and you're looking at this, it must have just kind of been a, a gut punch to you to see just how pervasive this problem was and just how deep it went. And not only that, but we made an ethical decision all of us early on that we were going to look to out pedophiles. And certainly we outed at least one pedophile in the film. And that's amazing. And that's, that's wonderful. We were not going to out victims. There are, there is credible evidence of A-listers, names whom you would know in Hollywood, who were victims of child sex abuse while being child actors. And you've seen just the tip of the iceberg, not only in our film, but you've seen that iceberg rising over the last, really, year or two. An open secret's just a small part of that. You even saw the other day Ashley Judd talking about being a young woman and not naming, but a, a big movie mogul uh, attempting something on her. You've heard about whether it's the Bill Cosby stuff, which the victims did discuss many years ago. It just seemed like nobody believed them. And now we have the viral power of the Internet. And we it's been unearthed uh, a deposition that was private for a number of years where Cosby confesses to putting something in someone's drink and all the stories appear the same. It's it's that iceberg is starting to rise and Hopefully, the days of the Hollywood casting couch, male or female, young or old, will be over soon. It really has no place in our society. So how did you guys kind of plan your way of telling this story to go from those binders full of information into fleshing this out into a real story that people can sympathize with these characters and, and or these people? Sorry, I keep calling them characters. It's tough for me to break out of the narrative uh -huh. mode. But to sympathize with these people and then kind of, you know, and tell their stories. How did you kind of approach that? There wasn't one. It was an entirely organic process where you roll the cameras. This, is, this an open secret is by and and for these brave survivors of child sex abuse in Hollywood and real life and real things that happened that are, that are backed up by the highest quality of journalistic evidence that's just going to make a compelling film. And you see that, whether it's the one victim taping his accuser, I mean, you think he, could, he should go work for the FBI or CIA next or something, or whether you learn about the miscarriages of justice that, that happened with the ridiculously light jail sentences 
clearly a lack of mandatory minimums in the, in the state of California in terms of sentencing. All that just happens organically because of the, the natural outrage and, and shock and things that, that there are about this problem. If it's a real problem, it's just going to come out and screen by having the victims, the survivors tell their stories. Now, what was this experience like for you? Because you, this was your first time in this kind of producer role, if I'm not mistaken. And how was this for you kind of coming in as a, a normal, uh, like a, a day trader, and now moving into this kind of movie mogul role? Well, I'm not exactly a day trader, uh, an investor. And it's interesting, the research process is a search for truth. You're investing in a company thinking, okay, how is it going to do in a year or two? Uh, what are the facts? And do people in the market maybe have their facts wrong and the price wrong, whether it's too high or too low? It's a very similar search for truth in a documentary. And so, sure, it was an exciting process to see the dozens of, of hours of footage and work with our creative team to say, okay, what, what are some important elements that really help build the case? For example, it was important to note out of the two hours of, of the interview that the one you know, high-ranking uh, individual in, in the industry provided to make sure it, it came out where he says, look, he wasn't registered. He wasn't registered under the California uh, Child Protection you know, Act. And that's extremely important because you have an act where everyone who works with children in the state of California is supposed to just register and so that everyone can check and make sure they're, they're not a sex offender. It's a very basic thing. And yet nobody's actually enforcing it. And none of the Hollywood studios, I mean, my goodness, you think about, <laughs> you go to a doctor to, to get a hangnail taken care of, and you've got like five forms that you're filling out, and then you're filling out another form saying you understood the other five and signing it. The amount of paperwork and compliance on our society is tremendous. And here you're talking about a serious business, children in the hands of adults who are not their parents, spending long hours away from home, and a very simple requirement and a very simple way to check on the state of California's website to see is everybody registered. So you'd think if you're a big studio, how can you not punch in somebody's name to Google, punch in somebody's name to a website and say, gosh, they're not registered and they're supposed to be working with children. That's a problem. Or uh, how can you be, you know, FX uh, with the hit TV show Anger Management and say, gosh, we're typing in everyone's name to Google who comes and work for us. So we could see Brian Peck, 2013, he's a convicted sex offender. Why is he an acting coach on anger management? It's just amazing. The simple, basic checks that wouldn't cost money, real money, wouldn't mess up anybody's lives or take a lot of time, and yet they're not done. Just the normal good citizen sort of common sense things that you'd expect. There have been some famous cases over the years of different actors, producers, directors who have um, been caught with child pornography, uh, not necessarily accused of outright pedophilia, but definitely engaged in, in child pornography. Why do you think that some people seem to be caught and punished and vilified, whereas other people just seem to kind of skate on through? It probably has to do with how much money you make, to be, to be quite honest. If you make a lot of money, then you can engage in private settlements. And again, we have the evidence. We know that private settlements have occurred, but we're not about outing victims. So those are things that we're not going to talk about because we don't, we don't have a piece of paper that's supposed to be a public document that everyone is supposed to see. That has a lot to do with it, whether you're 
a Roman Polanski or, let's say, a Victor Salva. Victor Salva was convicted of performing a sex act on a 12-year-old boy. He served a few years in jail, and then he eventually became the director of the whole Jeepers Creepers franchise, which, uh, ironically enough, is directed at a teen audience, of all things. We didn't talk about Victor Salva because it was a little old, frankly, um, and we wanted to focus on some more contemporary cases, but we really do just touch the tip of the iceberg in an open secret. Have you? I'm sure you're familiar or perhaps familiar with the Cameron Thor case, for example. That one I'm not familiar with, no. Cameron Thor was an acting coach in the industry. He had a bit part in the hit film Jurassic Park, and he was recently convicted of assaulting a girl who was then 13, 14 years old, something like that, about six or seven years ago. He met the girl's mother, of all places, at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And the girl uh, wanted to be an actress. He was an acting coach. He volunteered to help and, and, and things like that. And she, there was just a trial, and he was just convicted of a couple counts. Uh, he's awaiting sentencing. That's good because the average that it takes any victim of child sex abuse, whether Hollywood or anywhere else, is 10 to 12 years. So clearly our society has a lot of room for improvement, right? If it's taken 10 to 12 years on average, that's time that the pedophile can go out and harm other children. So we need to get that down, and an open secret is, is part of that. I think the most fascinating part of the documentary for me was the section wherein you talk about the, um, was it the, uh, like an entertainment channel. Den, Den, Digital Entertainment Network. That was just astounding to see this kind of, I don't even know how, well, I guess den of inequity is kind of a a good way to put it. It was just, seemed like a business catering to and run by pedophiles. And here's the amazing thing. They throw all these parties. That's been incredibly documented, whether it's the neighbors complaining and, and having police reports. It was known they had parties for a long time. And let's assume that nothing took place out in the open, but these were large parties, that no sexual abuse took place out in the open. You're a decent individual, I'm sure, (laughs) good morals. What's so hard to understand is many, many parties over a couple of years, thousands of people who are in Hollywood walk in and out of these parties seeing, after dark, a bunch of naked young boys running around, okay, nothing's actually happening or dressed inappropriately, or just the fact that there's open drugs and alcohol. I mean, my goodness, if you walked around the corner because a neighbor invited you to a barbecue one afternoon and you saw a bunch of teenage kids running around with open drugs and alcohol, you'd probably turn around, leave, and maybe a half hour later make an anonymous call to the police. That's one of the things that's so shocking to me that forget about whether anybody says they saw any abuse or not, or even saw some kid who wasn't appropriately dressed or dressed at all. The fact is there was absolutely open drugs and alcohol and an unsafe environment. And everybody thought that was, that was cool. What's also, you know, unfortunate is I guess the shame associated with child sex abuse. In other words, when we find a pedophile or let's say somebody has a friend and and they're famous or somebody has a couple of friends, you're an A-lister like Brian Singer You've got a couple of friends, former friends of yours, who, okay, you, you, you didn't know they were a pedophile, we hope, but they get, they get convicted. And we're not talking about famous people who have acquaintances with thousands and thousands of people. We're talking about 
good friends who you, you work with. For example, we know that Brian Peck did the commentary with Brian Singer on one of the X-Men DVDs. Okay, you're close with this guy. You didn't know, but it turns out he, he becomes a pedophile. We hope Brian Singer is not friends with him anymore, but why don't folks like that who are A-listers, who have real platforms because of who they are, help parents and children across America and say, look, I had a couple friends. They ended up being pedophiles. You know what? Here's some, maybe some signs or some tips or some things I learned that you could help potentially detect a pedophile because they, they slipped past me. Talk about your close encounter with the pedophiles. And instead, everybody just talks through lawyers or refuses to talk at all. That raises a lot of other questions, but we're not here to, we're only here to talk about who we can actually prove is guilty. We're not looking to, to cast a, a sort of tabloid, you know, net, if you will, and make, make a lot of insinuations. That must have been one of the most frustrating things for you is just because of the shame and the stigma that is attached with this, just getting people to talk to you must have been a real challenge. Absolutely. And that's why we only have a handful of folks who were, you know, no girls were willing to come on camera at the end of the day. It was only males. We make it clear we have a statement and this is not about sex or sexuality, but it, it was incredibly tough, and we had a little bit of a difficult road to distribution, but fortunately, we're there. Yeah, tell me about that. What was that challenge like? Because it feels like you're really taking aim at the heart of a Hollywood problem. It must have been difficult to have people kind of come on board for this, even just to support the release of it. We saw this early on. Okay, you've got a real documentary, a budget of a little over a million dollars. You've got an Oscar-nominated director, Amy Berg who's done work in a similar field, it shouldn't be hard to get into a film festival, right? Film festivals, part of the reason why they exist is so, look, three kids with some movie cameras who got $25,000 of friends and family funding and just got out of film school, and one of them might be the next Steven Spielberg, they can show something. Maybe it's, it's not on the big screen, it's in a documentary corner or something, but it, it's not really a challenge to get in, let's say. So we were shocked when we didn't get into L.A., Toronto, and London. When each time the initial okay came from the sort of creative people, and then a couple weeks later, you'd hear that that got rescinded, and you didn't hear a reason why. It was not, okay, well, your film did this or that, that there's a specific problem with that was just, you know, sorry, but film's not accepted. Fortunately, we, we screened at Doc NYC in, in last November. That was where it premiered, and it was amazing. On three days' notice, we had a 500-seat theater almost sold out. The critical reception was fantastic. We're honored that An Open Secret has a 93% positive professional critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is just outstanding. Put all those things together, and that usually means somebody smells money and wants to distribute your film. So we've, we've had to independently distribute, and we're doing that. What has been the reaction to the film? The critical reception has been amazing. Um, I've been in a number of theaters, and what's really interesting about this film, I'd be interested in your take, is that it's emotionally gripping. Amy Berg, our director, did such an amazing job of getting the stories out without going into lurid detail. Very generic terminology is used. Most of the time they say it or doing it. It's not something that'll make somebody squeamish from what they're hearing, but 
it's emotional. It's very, it's very heart tugging. I've, I've seen going to it in a theater where you've got a hundred people, like we've, we set up through this application gather and we just had in, in Dallas, Texas last week, uh, a screening, you get a hundred people in a room to watch this film. I mean, you, you hear the hisses from the audience. You even hear a couple people crying. It's, it's really, it's really something that's, that's unique and, and fascinating about seeing this film with, with a group. Well, for me, you set the tone so well with that different strokes episode. Oh my God. I saw that when it was first out and yeah, that scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing just how, I guess how, how deep it goes and how unfortunately there, there are many who did not survive what Todd Bridges survived, right? Todd Bridges ended up he talks about in the film the the horror and hell his life became for a number of years, trying to drown his sorrows in, in drugs and alcohol. There are so many who who didn't make it, and it's not just Corey Haim by, by by any long shot. There are a number of names that we just weren't interested in in I guess exposing at the at the end of the day, um, because you know out, out of respect for for the deceased, frankly. Now, you said that you did try to deal with things in kind of more generic terms, doing it, those kind of things, but yet you received an R rating from the MPAA. What happened with that? We did it first, and it turned out that that was very discouraging. We sent them a letter. They worked with us incredibly well, and we now have a PG-13 rated version. It's substantially not changed at all. We had to bleep out the blow in blowjob twice which actually is important. We've talked to experts and they felt it was important that we just bleep out the blow part because that way parents could tell their children, and we're not suggesting the children watch the film by, by any stretch of the imagination. We're simply, we want the film to be rated accurately for the language that's actually used in the film, not the emotional content. And as human beings, it's, I think, understandable to see how at first the MPA might have sort of conflated the two. But getting that PG-13 rating was important so that potential viewers don't think, oh my gosh, this is, there's some terrible language or horrible things in the film at all. But parents can tell the children, look, if anybody talks to you about any kind of job who's not your parent, come talk to us. And it was also important not to completely whitewash it in terms of language because that's an important part of the grooming process, which, look, we hope that, that parents learn something about the grooming process so that they could recognize potential dangers to their children. And an important part of the grooming process, as you saw with, with Evan, when they, he talked about the language that, that his, you know, ultimately his predator was using around 12, 13-year-old boys was clearly inappropriate. And that's a telltale sign of potential grooming. When an adult is using inappropriate language around children of a sexual nature, that can be seen as a way to sort of entice children into this idea of an adult club, right? Here's all this language that you don't know about, these terms you don't know, and we're part of the club that knows that, and that in that way they can sell the abuse horror, if you will, as, oh, this is just part of growing up, it's no big deal. And I hope that you saw that theme play out when you saw other pedophiles later on exposed in the film. There's that common theme of like, the thinking process of the of these pedophiles that it's 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 not a big deal it's just you know i have to say the other most powerful part of the film for me was the phone call that was amazing 
We didn't know that was going to happen. We didn't know that this individual was even going to interview with us, but it, it shows, just like Amy did in Deliver Us from Evil, these pedophiles are so cocky. I mean, they've been getting away with it for, let's face it, decades, and this individual was, was high-ranking, in, in he was one of the most prominent child managers of the last quarter century in, in Hollywood, and was so cocky to actually go on camera. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But that's what, that's what real life is when you don't script out a documentary and you, you just you let the victims lead with their stories. Because that, that phone call was at the end of an hour and a half interview about that, that you know, survivor's experiences. It was, okay, well, sure, I'll just pick up the phone and try. And, okay, so the guy answered and it happened. Yeah, I mean, Amy, Amy just did an, an amazing job. And she brought, she brought dignity. Um, and, 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 you know, our, our, the film's message, our tagline, be courageous, report it, life gets better, is, is tremendously important. Because whether you believe the justice system will do right by you or not, as was the case with, you know, at least, you know, a couple of the individuals, they talk about how their life is getting better now, that they, they're glad they reported it, they got out of their abuse situation. And sure, there were some travesties of justice, but they're, they're glad that they did it. And it's important that we talk about high profile cases, whether it's Jared or whether it's, you know, Ashley Judd talking about what, what somebody tried on her or whether it's Cheryl Burke just two weeks ago talking about, uh, you know, of Dancing with the Stars, talking about, uh, you know, her, her experiences, uh, you know, with child sex abuse. Have you, have you heard of, of Jimmy Savile and, 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 and the sort of, you know, scandal they've, they've had over there in the United Kingdom? A little bit, but not a whole lot. So there's this phenomenon called the Savile effect. It's real, it's documented, it's, it's been statistically proven. Jimmy Savile was, he was like Bill Cosby times Jared Squared. I mean, if you can believe something like that's possible. He, he was an A-lister, A-lister in the United Kingdom for decades. He had a weekly variety show on the BBC, which was like all three of our networks, you know, combined uh, back in the day. He raised probably $50 million for, for all kinds of kids' charities. He was friends with Prince Charles. I think he spent something like 11 New Year's parties with the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. I mean, as ingrained in the elite of the elite as you possibly could be. He dies in about 2010, 2011, and all these stories start leaking out. And it turns out he may have abused up to as many as 200 children, even sometimes when he was making hospital visits to sick kids. I mean, just really terrible stuff. Cover-ups, you know, the works. And the UK started to take this problem really seriously. Well, the Savile effect, because that's about as high profile as it gets, and it's just been roiling the papers for, you know, the last, really, three, four years. Crime overall in the UK is at a 30-year low. But whether it's child sex abuse, whether it's things happening in schools with, with children and teachers, whether it's rape or any kind of sexual crime, they're all up anywhere from 10, 20% to even some cases double, triple the number of, of, of crimes that have been reported uh, over the last couple of years. So high profile cases embolden those who are currently suffering in an abuse situation to say, you know what, whoever is, you know, abusing me, they're not such a big deal. I can do this. And that's really why we, we keep on with this is the Savile effect. And we hope that there will be a Savile effect in, in the United States with respect to child sex abuse, where we get that 10 to 12 years down because 
mathematically right, there's a huge backlog of not reported cases right now. If people can be so emboldened to do something as insane as deny that the Holocaust happened, there must be so many people that come at you and say, none of this stuff happened. You guys are making this up whole cloth. Have you experienced something like that? Oh, sure. I mean, there's, gosh, we, we've had all kinds of, of resistance thrown our way. Lawyers making empty threats. You saw, you know, Randall Kleiser's lawyer, for example. Uh, Randall Kleiser, you know, the director of Greece. Well, he, I guess he had a little bit of a career come down because, you know, he goes from being the director of this iconic Greece with John Travolta in the late 70s. And then by the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, he's director of Royal Standard for Den this little, you know, this little startup kind of, uh, you know, uh, web TV thing, right? But he was there, and his lawyer objected to one and a half seconds in the trailer. And it was like, come on, really? So we said, gosh, we didn't even know there was this famous guy there, and we're going to put a name tag on him. Now, look, he just appears in the background. Nobody's saying he's a pedophile. But that's another guy, Randall Kleiser. Wouldn't it be great if he could talk about his close brush with all these pedophiles and educate parents and children across America? When it comes to the film itself, what are the plans for it? I know you have the website that's going. You're still doing screenings, is that correct? Yes. So we have our Facebook page, an open secret doc. We've got about 26, 27,000 likes. We have the Courage to Act Foundation, and that's Courage to Act, you know, uh, Courage to Act Foundation.org. And that's really important because any profits from the film go to this charitable organization we, we've set up. We wouldn't want to ever profit a dime off of the terrible tragedies that, that have occurred with, with the survivors in our film. We would use the funds to lobby for changes to laws to help better protect children in Hollywood. And there's a number of them that we can go over. I mean, they're so common sense, it's not even funny. You'd be shocked that they don't have them. Or help out you know, those victims that are, that, that are suffering and need counseling and, and, and things like that. We, there's this new application called Gather, which is spelled without the E at the end, G-A-T-H-R. It's on our website, and anybody in any city or town across America can request a screening at their local theater. Go, go on the page. It's very simple. There's some very simple instructions. It doesn't cost you a thing to request a screening. You can request it for a month out, two months out, next week, what have you. You get the date set up, and then if others, whether they're your friends or whether they're other people interested, if enough people then say, yes, I'd like to go, then it gets tipped and it becomes an actual screening. And that's really uh, – crowdfunding, you know, is so big these days. That's, I think, a crowdfunding thing for the film industry that's going to be tremendous over time. And an Open Secret is, is one of the first films to really use this, this gather application where – Look, if a, if a film is, is, is good and it's good quality, it gets good reviews, you have an interested audience, you have a real cause that needs to be heard, Hollywood can't stop us. Hollywood can't decide that they won't distribute it despite all those things. What are some of the things that you really wanted to be in the documentary that you were unable to get in there just for time reasons that might be an extra feature? We would have liked, I think, to have supplied more of the, the evidence that, that we saw I mean, I think we're, we're pretty heavy as it is for a film in terms of, okay, holding up the piece of paper and showing it and having somebody read from it, but you can only do so much of that, right, and still keep the film moving. 
and we obviously have tons of that, so it would be wonderful to, to show those things and talk more about the close ties that people like Brian Singer and David Geffen and Michael Huffington and others had with Digital Entertainment Network. And wouldn't it be great if someone in the media would actually you know, try to contact these folks? And, and I mean, none of them have, have talked about their experiences. So we hope that uh, some greater multimedia, if you will, with an eventual DVD release or, or on-demand release, or, or you know, we could even post it on our website if we want, could really be of use to the public interest. Did you ever imagine yourself, say even five years ago, being kind of a, and I know this word has negative connotations sometimes, but I'm not using it negatively. Do you ever see yourself being this crusader for uh, this cause five years ago? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, we thought, look, even when we made the documentary film at first, I was just supposed to be the anonymous guy who went by his middle name and had a little, you know, producer thing in the credits. Now, granted, that's still a, there's still a significant role behind the scenes, but at the end of the day, it's an Amy Bird film. It got great reviews. It got a great reception at its fe- festival premiere. You expect to just sell it, and then the movie people that you sold it to, they do all their thing. We would have expected some folks in Hollywood to get behind the film and advocate for it. We don't have that, but at the end of the day, it's not really about the messenger. It's about the message and the quality of evidence and the quality of, of the cause and the simplicity of, of some basic steps that we can take to better protect our children. And I guess it's not just Hollywood. Hollywood was only a place. That's something that we learned through this process. The similar themes of children being in a pursuit, being away from home for long periods of time, adults having power over them who are not their parents, that's just a structural vulnerability. Whether a kid wants to be a professional golfer or like the ESPN exposed something with Lauren's Kids, uh, a charitable organization down here in Florida, about the probably the most prominent AAU girls high school volleyball coach who had had issues with child sex abuse in, in, in the past, uh, abuse of you know, former players, and was, was still out there doing you know, private teams and clinics and things like that. It was, it was unbelievable. So this exists, whether it's music, entertainment, film, any kind of you know, pursuit like that. It could be the, the soccer coach or, or you know, around the corner or what have you. Um, it's just a place where parents could get better educated on, on some warning signs. At the same time, it's important to educate folks and get rid of some of those stigmas, right? Like the stigma that somehow it's, it's the parents' fault or the kids' fault. I think we show some pretty good all-American families here that are close-knit and, and, and care and are really looking out for their kids. It still happened to them because it's only the pedophile's fault. It's nobody else's. And, and by shattering some of those stereotypes, encourage more to, to, to come forward. And the more that come forward, the more we get rid of these pedophiles. So there's a lot of good to be done. And when you see all that unfold over a period of a couple of years, it, it, it inspires you to be in the service of others. Yeah, it has been, I don't want to say good because it's a horrible thing, but it's good when these stories get out there. And it does feel, I would hope, that the pendulum is tipping or, or going the right way when it comes to, you know, 
Michael Jackson case and Jerry Sandusky and, and Brian Singer, just all of these things kind of coming out so that it does feel like maybe we can get rid of that stigma, get rid of that whole blame the victim mentality and get the truth kind of out there. Sure. Or there was um, there was the law and order guy, right? Jace, Jace Alexander. I mean, this was he was he was a producer on, on Jace, you know, on, on Law and Order. I mean, an actor, director. And this was only the end of July, beginning of August, and he gets charged with, with a bunch of child porn. Um, this, this stuff is out there, not only in Hollywood, but, but everywhere else. And the more we can really grab, get the public's attention with high-profile cases, the more we can move forward as a society. And, I mean, goodness, there's so many simple changes in Hollywood even. Take, for example, we know that Brian Peck is still working in Hollywood. He's, he worked as recently you know, as an acting coach on anger management. Isn't it amazing that we don't treat, in, in, in California, children's workplaces with the same protections as schools? I mean, isn't that just shocking? Like, if you're a convicted sex offender, you're not allowed within, I don't know, 1,000 or 2,000 feet of the building, depending on the state. You're not allowed in the building. In California, sure, they can't be one-on-one with a kid, but a convicted sex offender can be on a film set surrounded by children, and that's somehow okay. That's somehow legal. So, so very, very simple changes like that, changes in enforcement, some real mandatory minimum sentences. I mean, the, the one sentence that, that you saw, um, I'm sure you, you think it's a, uh, I think anybody would think it's a small fraction of what it ought to be, right? The guy pled guilty to four different counts, and that, that should spark, you know, the, the more that we can expose that. Uh, fortunately, lobbying in one state is actually not very expensive or very difficult. So we hope to, to do that. I've put the first 25000 in, into Courage to Act uh, Foundation, and uh, I hope that we, you know, get, we get contributions or, you know, and or profits from the film, and we can, really, uh, we can really get that change going in the state. It's important. So, yeah, what can people do to help out? Give me the information one more time. They can go to our website, which is uh, an open secret, uh, you know, an open secret uh, documentary. Um, it, it's anopensecretfilm.com. So they can go to that. Uh, they can go on the, the gather application that's that's on our website and request a screening in, in their town or city. And again, it's free of charge. It does not cost you anything to request that screening. We have two requested in uh, the Los Angeles area right now, and we expect that there's going to be dozens all over the country. We've just rolled this app out, and we've already been talking with a, a number of uh, you know groups of, of survivors of child sex abuse and, and things like that, and would say if, if you're a survivor or you know of a group that is, you can request the screening and it's a crowdsourced thing. We don't care whether you, the whole point is to gather. So you have a group, an organization, great. Use it to promote, you know, your things to get together or, or, or do something after the film or before the film. Um, that, that's, that, that's wonderful and it's all good. Um, it, it's, you know, no more expensive or cumbersome than just a standard movie ticket. So there's, there's that, there's, um, there's Courage to Act, CourageToAct.org, and uh, that's that's where folks can you know learn more about uh, you know what we're doing. And then finally, there's our there's our Facebook page, An Open Secret Doc, and uh, there's our Twitter handle at An Open Secret. And you can keep up with all the the news and uh, what's what's going on, not only with the film and the, the attention that we're so blessed to receive, such as from your podcast, which I'm sure we'll be posting a link shortly but also just you know, news in general about um, child sex abuse in Hollywood and, and what's being done and hopefully uh, what changes are happening. 
Well, Gabe, I really want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the film. And I want to thank you for all the good work that you guys have done. Well, uh, thank you for, for really taking the time and the attention to uh, focus on this important film. I mean, it's not a smash bang, you know, sort of entertaining, you know, action movie, but film can have an issue and still be dramatic and alert you to, to a cause. And that's what we hope to accomplish here that we don't, uh, it's not icky. It's not like eating your broccoli. There's real, there are real exciting twists and turns, unexpected things that just happen when you're focused on the survivors and, their unvarnished, real, true stories that you've you've, you've documented and, and verified. Those those you know amazing cinematic moments just naturally occur, and we've got a number of them in an open secret. We're back and we're talking about an open secret. Would you recommend this film to friends? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start. It certainly was a good place for me to start learning about this stuff, especially because it's so systemic. Like a lot of movies that you see that are about predators or the, you know, like the stuff you see on TV with the hour long profile of some serial killer or terrible monstrous person focuses on one person and and we kind of have the sense that this is contained one way or another either they're dead now and it's contained or they're in jail now and it's contained or it's just one person but I think this is an important thing to know about because it doesn't seem like it's being addressed in any way and all the people who are involved in this pedophile ring moved on to other things and continue to run businesses and to have lives and have this kind of go away for them. Yeah, you mentioned Polanski before and it calls to mind the one guy who pretty much got away scot-free by moving to England. Yeah, yeah. So many people have moved from you know, just even that digital entertainment network. You have just kind of branched out into other areas carefree, scot-free, and yeah, people are still working in the industry when they really have no right to be, and uh, yeah, it's just... Brock Pierce is on the board of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Foundation now. I'm glad I don't engage in Bitcoin (laughs) stuff at all. Yeah. You want to distance yourself from these people so much. You know, when when we talk about certain films on this show, we talk about, you know, our good friend... um, Fraulein Von B always uses the phrase, I don't want to yuck your yum. But there are certain things that just need to be yucked, and I think that pedophilia is one of them. That whole idea of someone being a predator, someone forcing themselves or convincing someone that something is okay when that person, a young man or woman, really doesn't have the mental capacity to make that kind of decision for themselves. Yeah. 
And I think that is so much at the heart of all of this stuff and just really, you know, and then having those things, because we all know that sex is such a, uh, um, uh, a emotional thing and such an important thing to our lives that then having this stuff done to you is just really can affect you for the rest of your lives. I think it's no coincidence that Amy Berg before this had directed a documentary about the, the priesthood scandals and just, you know, the, the abuse of power when it comes to that. And I think that these guys are in that same kind of idea that they can use their power as a way to, prey on these kids. Yeah, and that they could not just use their power to prey on them, but to set up a house where they could do it, to set up a system where they could funnel kids through it. We haven't mentioned his name, but they talked about, I think, Bob Villard, who was like a manager for um, people like Leonardo DiCaprio, but was also selling pictures of the kids on the internet. Oh, God. And it's uh, so much of the stuff is... um, I think it ends up seeming unbelievable because it seems just so unacceptable that it can't be real. But then there's all this evidence, you know, the kids have taped one of the the predators that you can, it's not like they were really trying very hard to hide any of this, Uh, but somehow it goes away. You mentioned uh, the guy selling the photos on eBay. I remember years ago, I was looking for a particular film from Mexico. Um, had read about this this movie and film as a subversive art, and I was looking for it on eBay. And I remember running across people that were selling stills from it. Then I started looking at some of the other auctions that they had. It was very rare to have stills from this film. It was I want to say it was like 1970-something. The name of the film is... Hubert Hante mm-hmm. and uh, Brontus uh, Hodorowski is in it, and uh, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a really good film. So I'm looking around for this thing, and uh, things were being sold on eBay, and you could kind of like read between the lines fairly easily because you know I'm not that smart of a man, Jenny, but I make a good husband, and I'm just like okay, they're selling these photos not because they're film fans, but because I think there's a young boy being spanked in this movie. And then you start looking at some of their other auctions, and it's just like, oh yeah, here's this Greek film from 1960-whatever, again, underage kids in this film here's this other movie you know and it's just like oh my god you know just and they would have stills or they would have vhs tapes or dvdrs at the time or whatever and you're just looking at it's just like this is all spank bank materials for uh pedophiles and here it is it's on ebay and it's like don't they police this stuff whatsoever i mean it just seems like such an easy way to get some of these guys off the street or at least off the freaking internet. And it's just like, hello, FBI, let's do an investigation of this stuff. Yeah. And it's just really sad how, I mean, you know, I just go out there and I barely scratch the surface and here I find this stuff out on eBay. And it's like, you can imagine that was in the, the plain Jane vanilla section of <laughs> eBay. I can't even imagine if you were going behind like the, the, you know, the R rated wall or the X rated wall, what kind of stuff you're going to find. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you imagine the arrogance of deciding that you're going to 
be the chair of the SAG-AFTRA committee for young actors and that it's really just a way for you to meet kids to try to groom. But Michael Hara does it. He's even confronted about it. And I think that's the most effective part of the film for me is that phone call. Yeah. That was like, you know, I'm trying to remember where I was, what class I was taking, but they would talk about how when you're making a documentary film, sometimes there are gifts, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're just like kind of like gifts from the gods kind of thing. You know, you just like, you're out there and you capture something that you never really thought you were going to be able to get before. And that was like the little gifts that you were given as you were making your project. That moment for me was such a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would also recommend An Open Secret. I definitely think that more people should see it. I won't say it's the best film in the entire world. Uh, it does follow a very typical documentary structure. There are a couple things. A little, every once in a while, felt a little clunky to me here and there. But for the most part, I think it was pretty well put together. I'm wondering if it was um, how much of it, if they had to go back and re-edit anything, if there were any kind of legal questions going on there. Because fortunately or unfortunately, the people who were making this documentary had to be so within the letter of the law and could not cast any sort of aspersions because otherwise they're just going to get the pants suit off of them. But it's just amazing how... That you have to be so protective of these potential predators, <laughs> you can't imply anything. And then, meanwhile, you're yelling at eight-year-olds about how they're responsible for their headshots. Why protect them? So that just about wraps up this special episode of the Projection Booth. Before we go, I want to thank our special guest, Gabe Hoffman, and my guest co-host, Carol Borden. So, Carol, what kind of stuff can we expect to see over at the Cultural Gutter coming up here soon? Uh, Well, coming up soon, we're going to have some changes and some new writers, including uh, Beth Watkins from Beth Loves Bollywood. She's going to be writing about filmy things a bit for us. And then, personally, I have recently done a piece about Kanedo Shindo's Kuroneko, for Teleport City, and I'll be following that up with a piece about Yotsua Kaidan and different adaptations of that in Japanese film at Teleport City. Well, Keith runs a really good ship over there as well. I'm glad that you guys work together. Yeah, me too. So where can folks find The Cultural Gutter? You can find us at www.theculturalgutter.com, and you can also find us on Twitter at, at culturalgutter. And where is Teleport City available? www.teleport-city.com Cool. Thanks again, Carol, for coming on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back Wednesday with our regularly scheduled episode and a few more times this month with some more specials. Until then, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Enough to eat, who am I to be blind?
victim of a selfish kind of love It's time that I realize There are some with no home Not a nickel to loan Could it be really me Pretending that they're not alone A wheel deeply sky Somebody's broken heart And a washed out dream this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.